Amen, amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be here uh, today. And if you're new, we are in a series called Counter Culture. And the idea behind this is that as we look at the culture around us, uh, we would believe that it's not working. Like whatever it is, it doesn't seem like it's working. Uh, people are not experiencing more hope and more peace and more fulfillment and more uh, joy. And marriages are not getting healthier and families are not getting better. Uh, all, all of these things are uh, slowly being removed from our lives. And so as we look at the culture around us, we're saying it's not working. And the good news is this, Jesus shows us a better way. And so we're walking through the book of Mark, which is one of the biographies of Jesus, and we're asking the question, how is Jesus showing us a countercultural way to live? And so this is Mark chapter 10. We're going to start off in verse 23 here this morning. It says this, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So this is God's word for us here uh, today. Also, as we get going, can we give it up for the kids in the room? Let's celebrate all of the children that are in the room here today. We love you guys. If you hear little noises popping up, don't freak out. It's all right. That's the sound of the next generation coming up in the church. So praise God uh, for that. Also, we have the tank up here. It's baptism week here, y'all. So we're excited about that. Man, it's just been a privilege uh, from Wednesday to the first service watching people get baptized already. And so God's just doing amazing things all around us. And once again, we want to give you that invitation. If you've never been baptized... Uh, At any point during the service, you can go out these back doors or find somebody with a lanyard on, and they will give you literally everything you need to get baptized today. They've got t-shirts and shorts and hair dryers in the bathroom in case you ladies didn't come ready, you know. And so we've got everything. Guys, too. Maybe you guys need a hair dryer. That's cool, too. Uh, but we've got everything you need to get baptized here today. And um, if you don't know what baptism is about, it's a symbol of our death to our old self as we go under the water. And as we come up out of the water, it's a symbol of our resurrection and our new life in Christ. And that's what baptism is all about. So um, it's the first step of obedience for every single believer. We're called to do this. And uh, we always say this, there's no time like the present to fulfill your calling and to be obedient to God. So if you've never been baptized, today's your day. Uh, We'd love to help you do that. And uh, quick question, anybody from the south in the room? Any southern? Okay, we've got some southern people. Here's what I love about you southern people. Um, you know how to encourage a pastor, all right? So uh, I need your help. We're going to teach the northerners a little bit of how to, how to converse during a sermon because I think the topic today is going to demand a little bit of uh, back and forth, okay? So we could, we could just use some more. There we go. Somebody's alive today. I like it. So I'm gonna, here's the deal. Sometimes you're like, I don't know what to say, Pastor Brian. I'm not sure. So I'm going to give you some words. We got preach it. We got some screaming. It's good. Uh, he, so he, I'm going to give you some scenarios. So if I say something that hurts, but like hurts good, right? Like that's a good truth. You say the word, ouch, right? Try it. Ouch. Say ouch, right? All right. So if I say something that's true, you use the word amen, right? So we say amen, all right? So, and then once in a while, I'm going to say something and you're like, I need that in my soul today. And you're going to say, come on, come on. All right. Like a little guttural voice, like, come on. Right. All right. So I'm going to, let's try this. Let's try this out. Okay. Um, so I believe In the world today, in the church today, a lot of people would say that they trust God, but actually they just trust themselves. 
You guys are so awesome. Well done, well done. Uh, how about this? I believe that God is always only 100% trustworthy. Amen. Amen. I'm also going to say this. I believe that today is the day for you to put your trust in Jesus. Come on, come on. All right, you guys did so good. Well done. Well done. Okay, let's see if you're like Wednesday, because they forgot all of it after five minutes. I don't know. Like, it just went, went downhill, man. So, uh, man, this passage in Mark chapter 10, some context for this. So, it really brings up, I believe, one of the most important questions that any of us can ever ask. And this is a question that if you're not asking it, you should. But I would guess that most people in the room, even if you're not a churchy person, even if this is your first time to church or someone kind of drug you here today or you're watching online and maybe maybe just a family member's watching and you're overhearing right now, but you're not really into this faith thing, no matter where you're at, this is a question I would guess that most people have asked at some point, and it's this. Who actually goes to heaven? Who actually goes to heaven? We want to know. And the reason we want to know is because we all want to go there, Right? The idea is, even if, it's crazy how many people are not church people or Bible people, but they believe in heaven. And if there is a heaven, we think, well, then there's the opposite of heaven. There might be a hell. And and between the two, I would rather go to heaven, would be most people's opinion. Amen, right? So here's the thing about it. When people answer this question, who actually goes to heaven? The answer for most people is this, I do. I do. I I believe that I am going to heaven. If you ask the question, well, why do you believe that you're going to heaven? Most people would say this. Well, good people go to heaven, and I'm a pretty good person. Right? Most people believe good people go to heaven, and I'm a pretty good person. Which brings up some pretty deep questions, doesn't it? It brings up this question, I think, which is a really important question to ask, which is how good is good enough? If you think that you're a good person, how good is good good enough? How do you know you have crossed that line to get into eternity with God? The answer is, if good people go to heaven, you don't ever know. But what most of us do is we go by comparison, right? This is the one everybody throws out, well, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Adolf Hitler, right? That seems to be our standards. As long as we're somewhere between Mother Teresa and Hitler, we're doing pretty good. Uh, That's kind of what people tend to say. Or we look around... And we go, well, I, I'm a pretty good person compared to my friends. So uh, I'm better than those people, right? Or, or, or you might just kind of look around and go, well, I'm not as good as that person, but I'm pretty decent, which once again forms the question in our minds, well, how good is good enough? And there's a young man in this moment of Jesus' life. He comes to Jesus. And this man has accomplished a lot. He's done a lot. And he kind of shows up to Jesus, I think, with a little bit of a swagger. Like a little skip in his step, you know. Anytime you're coming to Jesus with a swagger, you do not know who you're talking to. So he shows up to Jesus, and I think he walks up with a swagger, and he says this in Mark 10, 17. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm embellishing a little bit here, but I do believe that as we continue to hear this man's posture towards Jesus, you kind of get the sense that he asks it like that, like, good teacher. I know the, question, the answer to this question. And most of the people know the answer to this question. But I'm just going to ask, what must someone like myself do to inherit eternal life? And the answer he's expecting is, you made it. You're in. If anybody's good enough, you are, right? 
And we know this is how the man postures himself because Jesus gives a list of things and said, this is what you must do. And the man's like, I've done all of this since I was a little boy. Like I have lived a righteous and upright life. But then in Mark 10, 21, Jesus ups the ante. He says this, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Ouch. So this man hears from Jesus how he can enter the kingdom. And Jesus says, you need to sell everything, rich man. Give it all away. Come follow me. It's just, it's just that simple. And the man we know goes away sorrowful because he's not going to do that. You see, the first thing I want you to know is this. Jesus always wants the one thing you just won't give him. And that's what Jesus knows in this man's life. This is not a a blanket statement to all people. If you want to go to heaven, you have to sell everything. That's not what's being said here. Jesus knows this man's heart. And he knows that there is one thing in this man's life. Although he's lived righteous and upright, upright in so many different ways, there is one thing that he does not trust God with. And for him, it's his money. And in this moment, it's a conversation between Jesus and this man, but also there's a group of people standing around. The disciples are there. And when they would have heard Jesus say that to this man, their jaws would have dropped. You would just like heard a pin drop. Like, what? What, this guy? This guy hasn't done what he needs to do to enter the kingdom of God? Because in their society, rich people had the favor of God on their lives. If you had money, it's because God... Was, was looking favorably upon your life. You were blessed. You were blessed if you had a lot of money. And certainly God would only bless the righteous and those who were going to enter the kingdom. That was what they thought. And so when Jesus starts questioning this man's salvation, the disciples are concerned, to say the least. He goes on in verse 23. He says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, It's going to be difficult to enter the kingdom specifically for the wealthy. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a minute. Don't get too nervous. I know some of you, as soon as I start talking about money in church, you just start sweating. Uh, You get this craving for coffee, and then all of a sudden you need to leave. So don't don't, don't, don't do that. It's going to be okay. Just it's going to, stick with me. We're going, to, we're going to change it up at the end. But Jesus is specifically talking to the wealthy. Now, the question that most of us would have is, is that message for me? Am I the wealthy? Is Jesus talking to me? And so who really are the wealthy? Now, most of us know this, that by global standards, in this room, we are the wealthy. By global standards, we are far exceeding most people in our income. Even if you're here today and you're like, Brian, did you see the car I showed up to church in? Uh, you just tipped your hand. You have a car, right? So, I mean, you're beating out a lot of people in the world. So who are the, the wealthy? Well, I just kind of wrote this down. I believe that people who buy food in bulk, pay to watch TV, drive to work, carry around a cell phone in their pockets, and have something left over to take a flight for vacation once in a while are probably the wealthy. So I'll be the first to say, that's me. That's me. I drove to work today. We went to Costco, which can you leave Costco without spending $500? It's just terrible. Our family, it's insane. So I'm like, babe, you can go once every six months to Costco. We can't afford any more. Um, but it's just, again, like buy food in bulk. I have a phone. I have more income than I need to just feed myself and have a roof over my head. And, and, and many of us in the room would say that I have more than the basic necessities in life, even if I've got some bills that are unpaid and some credit cards that are still due. Now, the impact of what Jesus is saying here is huge. 
Like, he calls out the wealthy. He could have called out anyone. He could have said how difficult it will be for the addicted to enter the kingdom of God. He could have said how difficult it will be for somebody who has lust in their hearts to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for the proud to enter the kingdom of God. No, he calls out one segment of the population, and that's a segment that I think all of us in the room, barring maybe just a couple people, would probably fit into, and that's those with wealth. And this has some pretty direct implications and then some important indirect ones. We'll get to the end. So the first one is this. I want you to write this down if you have a pen. Our wealth can lead us towards self-righteousness. This is the implication, is that we can start to think that we are a self-made man, self-made woman, and, and that because of what we have, we can start to kind of think that we are right and righteous before God. And that not, it, it doesn't just impact our money, but it impacts even our salvation. And that's what's going on in this man's life. Like, oftentimes, because of our financial security, and because of our, our, our financial safety in life, we can start to move away from dependence on God. And we can start to think that, man, it's on me to provide, and I'm the one that has made my life what it is. Our wealth can lead us toward a sort of self-righteousness. Now, you'll never hear me say from the front that money's a bad thing. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Like, like money isn't a result of the fall. I don't think Jesus was over here dealing with poverty in some part of the world and looked over here and he was like, oh, you created dollar bills and money and what are we doing? And No, like money is something that's morally neutral, but it can certainly end up having our hearts, and this is so key, it can take us away from realizing that God is the source of everything good in our lives. Amen. There you go. So everything is from God and for God in our lives. In fact, Paul says this to his young apprentice, Timothy. In 1 Timothy six seventeen. he says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. I love that he says this, which is so unreliable. Don't we know that in 2023? Money's pretty unreliable. Be real. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need, listen to this, for our enjoyment. Is it okay to enjoy the blessings of God? Yes. Yet you should never feel shame for enjoying the blessings of God, but he doesn't stop there. He says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. You see, generosity is a muscle. It's a muscle. You're not born with, with a real strong generosity muscle, although some have more of a, of a propensity towards it than others. And I, I would guess in most marriages in the room, you have both sides of the coin. Like in every marriage, there's the generous person and the hoarder, right? Amen. All right. No elbowing in church. We're calling out your spouse in church. So I'll be the first to say that uh, my wife has a stronger generosity muscle than me. And I tend, to, I tend to kind of be more fearful when it comes to money. And so I'll hold on when she wants to let go of it. It's why God gives us each other. Um, and, and so she challenges me. I, at this point, my, my posture is that if Amanda says we should give, I just do it. I kind of close my eyes and go, okay, I'm going to trust, right? It's going to be a good thing. But I've learned that over the years because I know that I can put my trust in money, right? And what he says here is not just that, not just tithing, which is something we did from day one when we got married. We said, we're going to set aside 10% of our income from day one and make sure we're, we're supporting local ministry, giving to our local church family. And then beyond that is generosity, and we're going to give beyond that and look for opportunities to give. But what I found over the years is that whenever those opportunities would pop, pop up, I would not want to do it. I would, I would resist it. And so we got in this conversation once, and we realized that um, we had not prepared ourselves for generosity. 
we were not ready to give. And so what we started doing uh, early on is that we would tithe at the beginning of the month, pay our bills. We would also set aside a $100 bill uh, for each of us at the beginning of the month, and we'd put that in our, in our wallets. And the rule was this, that by the end of the month, we needed to give that $100 bill away to someone in need. And the only rule in our marriage was that we had to make sure we told the other person the story with it. And so we had to give it away and then make sure we told the story. And what would, what would start happening is as we were ready to give in those moments, and it was already budgeted for generosity, we ended up with these really, really cool stories where a friend, you know, who, you know, their washer broke and they didn't know it was going to break. Uh, we were able to bless them. And somebody else who had these medical bills that came up out of nowhere, we were able to bless them. And, you know, a lady in the grocery line who just forgot her wallet, like we got money to bless her. And it just started happening. Why? Because we took this seriously. We started to grow the muscle of generosity. And when you grow the muscle of generosity, what you do is you fight greed in your life. When you grow generosity, you fight greed. Here's the deal. I believe that greed says this, it's on me to provide. But giving says it's on God. And I think there's a lot of people who don't trust God to provide because they have not lived a generous life. What some people would say is that if God gave me more, I would be more generous. That's not how it works. Generosity precedes that provision. It comes from faith and trusting that God will provide in the end. You see, when we give, what we're saying and rehearsing to our hearts is that we serve an unlimited God, right? And we enter, we enter into this posture with our finances and with life in general. It moves so much beyond our finances. This posture that, man, God has abundance. He has everything at his fingertips. Everything comes from God. But when we are greedy and we hoard things, what we rehearse to our hearts is this, that it's all on me to provide. It's all on me to take care of myself and that God is not a God of abundance. He's a God of scarcity. And so when we do that, it doesn't just, again, affect our money. It affects every part of our life. We go, if God can't provide for me financially, maybe he can't provide for uh, my kids and maybe he can't take care of them and maybe he's not going to help my marriage. Maybe he's not going to help me at work. And, And all of a sudden, our faith starts to unravel, whereas giving rehearses this narrative to our hearts that God has all things in his hand, that everything comes from him. And it's something we need to, we need to teach our hearts to do. And we need reminders of this, right? I, mean, I don't always remember that everything comes from God. Um, so my kids are getting old enough that they're starting to get jobs and make money, uh, which is lots of fun. And uh, my, my oldest, she came in uh, to the house one day and she had this huge cherry pie that she'd bought. And she sets it down on the counter, and, you know, I'm just getting home from work, and, you know, after a long day of providing for the family, and I look over, and she pulls out a sticky note, and she writes her name on the sticky note, and she slaps it on that pie and leaves it right on the counter. And I'm going, I'd like a little cherry pie. And she goes, no, that's, Dad, that's my pie. I bought that pie with my money. And you parents know, like, the blood starts to boil, right? Because it... It had already been a long day anyway, and so now my daughter has provided for herself, right? And she has pie that is not for dad. And so in that moment, I didn't feel super honored, right? Like many, many of you get this, and I reacted, I'll be, I'll be honest, and uh, decided to make a bit of a point. So I went and got the sticky notes, and I did this. <laughs> Let the parents say, come on. We got the dad's eggs and the dad's salsa and the dad's cream cheese and the dad's butter and the dad's refrigerator 
And when I got done with that, I had to keep going. I walked down the hall to the bathroom and I did this. There's some worship happening in the room. Preach, Pastor, preach. We got dad's water and dad's sink and dad's drain and all the things are their dad's. She got the point. She got the point. I don't feel like I even need to preach this anymore. Do you guys get it? Right? Listen, listen, listen. God, in his love for us, sometimes will graciously remind us that everything we have comes from him. And you can wait for the reminder if you'd like. But you're much better, much better off to rehearse this reality to your heart every single day of your life. To just start off the day going, God, I, everything's from you. Rich or poor, I'm going to worship you. God, in, in wealth, God, in, in seasons where I have a lot, in seasons when I have a little, I'm going to worship you. God, I'm going to start off my, my life, I'm going to start off by giving to you in every way. Because it shows and reminds my heart that it all comes from you. It can all be taken from you or by you, God, and everything is for you in the end. And so this is something we need to do, is remind ourselves where what we have comes from. So that's the direct implication. If, if you're not giving, if you don't have a, a way to rehearse, this is why God gave us this idea of tithing. And I know, I know when pastors talk about this, you can get so uncomfortable, and I just see the awkwardness grow in the room. But I just want you to know, tithing isn't so that we can do ministry as a church primarily. There's a byproduct of it that we will do things as a church, but the primary aspect of tithing is that it teaches your heart where everything you have comes from. It's a rhythm in your life. It's just like the Sabbath. Uh, some of you haven't had a day off in years. And the reason God gave us the gift of the Sabbath was that one day a week we'd say, I'm not going to produce, I'm not going to make money, I'm going to trust God with everything. I'm going to trust that I can put seed in the ground, but I cannot make it rain. And... And so this is something that we need to do is to have a rehearsal of this in our lives, to not give by impulse, to not go, well, Brian, if you show me enough really needy people, then I'll give. It's not about that. Like, yes, God will use you to bless others, but you need it in your life. You need this rhythm. The second indirect implication of this text is this. I believe that although money is powerful, that we are capable of abusing anything to miss out on the gospel. For you, like Jesus, if you were talking to him and you came to Jesus and said, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? This man had a lot in his mind that he'd accomplished, a lot that he'd done. What would it be for you? What would be the, the, the resume that you would bring before Jesus? Jesus, do you know how much ministry I've done? Do you know how much Bible I've learned? Do you know how many people I've shared the gospel with? Do you know how many sermons I have preached Jesus? Like, what would you bring before Jesus? You see, we're capable of abusing anything to miss out on the gospel. But Jesus is saying, hey, be careful with your finances. Solomon, who's one of the richest men and the wisest men who ever lived, he said this in Proverbs. He says, oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. You see, some people bring their riches before God as a reason for salvation. Others bring their poverty. Neither are right. Like both are distortions of the truth of the free gift of the gospel. The gospel is a free gift of grace. You can do nothing to earn it. 
But all of us can come before God with something. And some of you are like, oh, I'm a little more holy because I drove here in a hatchback, rusted out, whatever. You're, you're not. Like none of, us, none of us can come before God and show him what we've done or what we have and say, this is why I deserve it. Solomon says, hey, God, if you give me a lot, I'm probably just going to trust in my riches. If you give me a little, I may just become obsessed with my poverty and, and also miss out on you. And again, this is just him. For you, maybe God has entrusted you with a lot. And, and I hope he has. And I hope your heart's going to be good with it. I hope you're going to be faithful in that journey. Or maybe he's entrusted you with a little. And maybe you're in a season of real financial struggle. And he's trusting you in this season to trust him with whatever that is in that situation. So Jesus responds to this with a couple of illustrations to help answer this question of who it is that enters the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 24, it says, But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So it's difficult for everyone, right? Then he goes on and says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, uh, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this this story. Uh, Many of you know the old camel through the eye of the needle story. And, And over the years, pastors have embellished on this. I've heard this preached over and over again. What I've heard many times is this, that, Oh, this idea of a camel going through the eye of a needle. In Jerusalem, there was a gate. And it was known as the eye of the needle. And and there would be a a camel would try to get through that gate, but the gate was really low. And so for the camel to get through through the gate, it had to bend down really, really low. So it was really difficult to get through that eye of the needle gate, but not impossible. But here's the deal. In this text, the Greek word for needle literally is the word for a surgeon's needle. And so if I held up a surgeon's needle and I had a camel, and I asked you, how difficult would it be for a camel to go through the eye of this needle? Would you say, oh, that's really difficult? No. What would you say? That's impossible. That's impossible, right? For a cam- that's what Jesus is literally saying. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished, and Jesus said to them, uh, and they said to him, then who could be saved, right? And Jesus looked at them and said this, this is so important, With man, it is impossible. With man, it's impossible. I want to sit with that for a moment because too quickly we move on. Too quickly we move on to, oh yeah, God can do it. No, no. Your salvation is impossible. Like, Like, just embrace that reality. Our salvation is absolutely impossible. We have to embrace the impossibility of our salvation to truly receive the free gift of the gospel. You have to embrace it. And what this rich man didn't do was embrace the impossibility of his own salvation. He brought some things before Jesus and said, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit the kingdom? But what, I, what he assumed was he had already done all of those things. You see, we are so desperately in need. And we are so much at the mercy of God's grace. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine called me up. He's a pilot and has a small aircraft. And he said, hey, I want to take you up and let's go for a flight. And I said, well, that's awesome. I I love a good flight in Alaska. And anytime somebody's ever invited me out to go on a a small airplane, I just want to take them up on that opportunity because it's just incredible to see this this place uh, from the sky. And uh, it does make me a little nervous. I was in a plane wreck about 10 years ago, and so um, that's a whole other story. But I do get a little anxiety. But I was like, okay, let's, let's go up, and I'm going to work on those nerves and try to get a little more comfortable. And so we take off, 
later in the evening, about 9 p.m. out of Birchwood, and we fly over the inlet, and it's just beautiful. There's a sunset coming, up, coming out, and it's just amazing. And we, we zoom around for a while and just see the sights, and before we knew it, we were almost to Talkeetna. It's coming up on 11 o'clock at night. And he said, let's just put it down in Talkeetna. And so I said, that sounds good. We land there, and there's nobody around. And he taxis around a little bit, and he's like, well, let's just take off and kind of head back home. And so I'm like, that sounds good. So we, we head down the runway, and we take off, and I notice that we just barely clear the trees. Now, I'm not a pilot, but this seems like a problem. And I'm not saying anything because I'm getting a little nervous, but I'm not a plane guy. I am an engine guy. And what I could hear was that the engine wasn't running properly. It's kind of popping and making some noises. He begins to adjust things, and he adjusts the mixture on the engine. Every time he adjusts it, it starts to stall. And I'm just through the roof, like losing my mind. I'm not saying a word because what what am I going to do, right? About then, his wife calls. He answers the phone. That's an interesting choice. Hey, honey, how's it going? Yep, doing good. Gonna land the airplane. See you, bye. And then I mumble out these words. I say, are we going to be okay? And I'm looking around, and I'm going like, okay, I see a field. I see a, 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 a street to land. I'm looking at options, you know. I'm like, are we going to be okay? And he, I, I quote, these are his words, we're going to try to flip it back around. Try, right? There's no try when I'm in an airplane. I'm not okay with try at this point. So he, he keeps adjusting and keeps working it. We're in the air and brings it all back around. We land and tell Keaton, he shuts off the motor and he goes, I know what I did. If you're a pilot, I'll tell you later. That's not the point of my story. But there was a little bit of an error. We were fine. Everything was okay. But this was a situation of total helplessness. Like if I tried to help, I would only made matters worse, Right? What am I going to do? Start pushing buttons and yanking on things? You know, that would be the last thing he would want me to do. And so what could I do? I just simply sit there and do a lot of praying, right? Be very close to the Father in that moment like I was. But it's a moment, and I was talking with a friend of mine who's a therapist, and she said, you know, sometimes people get the worst PTSD from situations where they are completely out of control because we're so bad at that. We hate the idea that we are not in control of our situations, that we're not in control of our futures, that you can't do anything to change your life. It's all about Jesus. Like, like we can try to help, but in the end, like, we are so underneath the grace of God. And if you have accomplished anything or overcome anything or done some good things, it's merely by His grace. Every skill you have, every opportunity you have is a free gift from Him. You're at His mercy. Peter responds to this moment, and uh, he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. He doesn't get how desperately they are in need of grace for salvation. And he says this, as Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. See this? Look what we've done. Look at what I've, look at what I've given up for you, Jesus. And, and some of you might be tempted to do this. In answering the question, who actually goes to heaven, you might say, see, Jesus, look what I've done. I gave up an hour every Sunday for 50 years. Aren't you impressed? I led a Bible study for 22 years. Aren't you? Aren't you impressed with that? Jesus, I tithed so faithfully for 25 years. Jesus, I gave to compassion and sponsored not one but two children in Cusco, Peru. Jesus, look what I did. That's what Peter's essentially doing. Peter still thinks salvation is a checklist. 
and he starts to list out his credentials. He's essentially saying this, Jesus, if anybody deserves to be in your kingdom, it's us. It's us. Because we've given up so much for you. But here's the deal. See, when you list your credentials for heaven, to God or to other people, you tip your hand. Because nobody has given up everything, which means there's always something left to give, which means you're guilty of keeping things from God, which means your credentials can't save you, they merely condemn you. None of us have given up everything. There's always something left to give. So whatever it is that you bring to God may be your undoing. It may be the thing that the enemy is using against you right now. And what Jesus warns is that, hey, if you have wealth, there's going to be a temptation for that to be your thing. The thing that the enemy uses to keep you away from trusting God. If anything is keeping you from that, we need to look at it really, really honestly. Jesus goes on in verse 29. It says, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Peter says, Jesus, look at all that I've done. Is it not worth anything? And Jesus says, oh no, it's worth something. He's essentially saying that when you join the family of God, you get the resources of the family of God. So you may not have a house, and you are part of ACF Church. Guess what? This is your house. This is your place. You own this place. This is your house. You may not have brothers and sisters, but when you become a Christian, you have brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. Like, you get all of these things, and this is what caused the first century church to grow and expand was that people were so open-handed with what they had. They saw everything as something for all of us. In other words, when you're doing your budget... You're not just doing your budget, you're doing our budget. When I'm doing my budget, one amen on that. I know that's a hard one. When I'm doing my budget, I'm not just doing my budget, I'm doing our budget. Does that make sense? You're like, that sounds like communism. No, this is Christianity. It's by choice. It's by choice. You've chosen to enter the family of God, which means that we all share this together because we are one family under Christ. You've chosen to do that. So, but are you actually part of the family? Are you, are you living like you're part of the family, right? Jesus says, no, like, when you give these things up, but you join my family, man, you get so much more. And when they talk about, he says, leaving father and children and, and, and your house, for some of us, we read that list and we're like, I haven't, I haven't done nearly any of that, right? I haven't had to give up family. Certainly haven't given up my house. I haven't given up much financial. Like, I haven't sacrificed a whole lot to enter into this family, whereas they had to. Because when they became Christians, their family abandoned them. They were literally giving up their family. When they became Christians, they probably got fired for their jo- from their job. They probably lost their homes. And so, again, what is it that you bring before Jesus that you're like, Jesus, look at what I've done. That's what Peter's doing. Jesus, look at the sacrifices I've made. And I just imagine Jesus looking at Peter within his mind's eye, visualizing himself walking to the cross to, to die to the sin, for the sins of humanity. And Peter's saying, look at all I've sacrificed. And Jesus thinking, compared to who? Compared to who? I'm about to give up everything for you. And he talks about in the age to come that there will be blessing 
in the age to come. And this is something that is, is true, that we need to be thinking about, is that your faithfulness, it can't get you into heaven, but it can make your accommodations in heaven a bit nicer. This is true? Have you heard the, the phrase uh, treasure in heaven? Have you heard that before? That's not just something we made up. Like, this is a biblical principle. One of the terms that we hear a lot on, like, house hunter shows is this, uh, forever house. Like, I'm buying my forever house. And here's what you need to know is that um, in this world, you will never buy your forever house. If you make it 80, 90 years in this life, you're doing pretty good. Most of us won't even make it that long. But you are an eternal being. And you're going to spend just a sliver of time on this earth. Whatever the house is that you're investing in or living in is not your forever house. You have a forever home, and it's either with Christ in heaven or apart from him in hell. And these are the two realities that the Bible throws out. There's no third option. There's no, can I just disappear? There, there, that's not an option. And so we get to determine what our forever home looks like. And apparently what we do today impacts what that looks like. And so, again, are you investing in your forever home today? And then Jesus closes, says, but many who are first will be last in the last first. In other words, many of the people that you think are going to get in, they're not going to be there. You're going to be, where is, where is Susan? I thought she was so great at work, loved everybody, so caring, like did really well financially. Sorry if your name's Susan. Um, like, where is she? She's not here. And then this guy over here who you're like, what a jerk. Like, this guy was horrible, but he was desperate, and he was humble. And at some point, he came to the Lord and said, I need, I need, I need mercy, and God gave it an abundance. Essentially saying, man, some, some of the people you think would be first would be the last people that I would see in the kingdom. Some of the people that you would think would be last to be in the kingdom are the, the first to get in. So here's the answer to the question. So who actually goes to heaven? The answer is this. Nobody goes to heaven without Jesus, but anybody can get in with him. Anybody, anybody can get in with him. This is such good news, and I I just hope you can understand this, is that you are so unworthy of the grace of God, and and I am too. And the rest of that statement, with God, it it says, with man it's impossible, but with God everything is possible. It is so possible that, that we can get into the kingdom of God, but only through the grace of Jesus. Nobody goes to heaven without Jesus. Anybody can get in with him. That means... That nobody is too good here today to be saved by Christ and nobody is too bad today to be saved by Christ. That none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. Would you receive that free gift of grace today? And when you do, when you receive the grace of Jesus, you'll, you'll, all of a sudden, you'll start to see God as a God of abundance in every area of your life. Because you start to think, if his grace is abundance to save me for all that I've done, he can certainly provide for my family. He can certainly heal this friendship over here. He can certainly work in this prayer that I have that I've been praying for years. He can do anything. If God can save me, he can work miracles in the entire world, right? It starts to open up our mind to the abundant heart of God. And so I want to just close with an invitation for you. Uh, we have filled up the tank with like 100 degree water. It's amazing. And I'm not, I don't want to sell you on baptism. Uh, I, I don't want you to get in if you feel worthy. Only if you feel unworthy of baptism should you get in. Only if you're here today going, that, yeah, I don't deserve to get in that tank. I don't deserve to claim Christ as my Lord and Savior, but Jesus says that 
the blood of Christ is what makes me worthy, I'm going to trust that today. And I'm going to trust that today can be a day of remembering and even receiving that, that, that death to my old self and that resurrection to new life. And if you've never stepped into that, you don't know how many years you get left on this earth, but you get today to make that decision. I want to invite you to head out to the lobby, grab somebody with a lanyard on, and let them know you want to get baptized. And we'll, we'll do that here in just a minute as we sing. Would you stand up? I want to pray for us. God, I know in many ways it's just a hard conversation. And the reason it's so hard when we talk about money is because it's what has our hearts. It's the thing that we flinch to for security and safety. And yet, God, you are the only one who can save. You are the only thing that's secure in this, in this world, God. Beyond that, God, I just I want to acknowledge that there have been things credentials that I brought before you as, as reasons to feel good about my own salvation. And yet, God, I know that none of those things hold up. That good things matter, God, but they can't save. God, I pray that be the conviction in the room here today, God, that we would all know that good things matter. Generosity matters. Serving matters, God, but it cannot save us. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had to die for us. So, Father, today we want to receive our salvation as a free gift. Maybe for the first time in a long time or for the first time ever. And I pray you'd give courage to the person who needs to get baptized today. Help them to just have the strength in their knees to get up and to receive that. God, we love you. We pray we could just worship you today as the giver of every good thing. God, help us to sing from that place. God, that everything good in our life, it's come from you. And you are worthy, worthy of our praise. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.